The reading this morning is taken from Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, on page 1236 in the Pew Bible. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you in, out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline to be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thanks. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Great if you could have that open in front of you. Page one, two, three, six, and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we might behold extraordinary things in your words. But more importantly, we ask that you might melt our hearts and motivate our wills, that we might live in humble obedience to all that we read. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What kind of manager was Alex Ferguson, Sir Alex Ferguson? He managed at Man United for, I think, 23 years, led them to unprecedented success. And even if you're not really into football, he's become a great model of leadership. I watched on my deathbed, no, sorry, my sickbed this morning, a fascinating, not this morning, uh, this week, a fascinating program that looked at him. He was, as part of that program, uh, lecturing or being involved in teaching some leaders from across, young leaders who came from all around the world. And a Harvard professor led these uh, young leaders in a discussion while he was sat there about what they thought were the key to his leadership and management. And only at the end did he get up and say something, so he had to sit and listen. And one of the key issues that came up, whether you know much about him or not, was uh, what kind of atmosphere did he create in the dressing room? Was it an atmosphere of love or fear? You see, uh, they uh, drew a continuum, because some said love and some said fear, and they were trying to work out which way it was. And then as the uh, documentary went on, there were stories of the great contrast as they interviewed ex-players. We discovered that he was an amazingly loving man. He knew everyone's name within the whole club, uh, from uh, the cleaners, uh, the boot man, the, 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 the laundry people, uh, whoever they were, he knew them by name. And he knew if something had happened, he'd remember and go and ask, how did it go last week at the, off- at the hospital when you had your operation? 
And Cristiano Ronaldo, perhaps one of the greatest stars that ever played with Man United in his time, said that it was a moment when it was quite at the height of the season and uh, obviously was needed at that time. But he went to uh, Ferguson and said, look, my dad is ill in hospital. And Ferguson said, go. Family is always more important than football. And just let him say, go. Come back whenever you're ready. It showed an extraordinary loving man. But also, as you listen to uh, those who have spoken to him, and perhaps what we know for him most from the headlines is the uh, rather uncompromising boss, the hairdryer treatment. You'll remember the moment when David Beckham emerged from a changing room one day with a, a slit across the top of his eye where it appears that uh, Ferguson had booted a football boot and it had hit Beckham in the eye. So furious was he. And he used to give the hairdryer treatment standing in front of them, absolutely blasting them. And no one could be complacent. No one had a guaranteed place, he said. Roy Keane was sacked when he was captain at the height of his career, was sacked because of an interview that he did for Manchester United TV. Love or fear? Well, Ferguson said, I like to think of it being in the middle. He said the word respect that holds together love and fear. But what about Jesus? What was his management style? What is the management style of Jesus when it comes to his church? Is it love or is it fear? In C.S. Lewis, in the Narnia Chronicles, I think it's the line of Rich in the Wardrobe, where you get to Aslan. Aslan is the lion, but of course typifies Jesus. He's really the picture of Jesus at the heart of those stories. And this is the great quote that you get. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. See, Jesus, or certainly Lewis, through his stories, was trying to say, this is what Jesus is like. Don't ever start treating Jesus like some domesticated cat that sits on your knee that you can stroke and bring you comfort when you need it. No, he's the king. And if he's the king, you cannot be half-hearted, over-familiar. You can never treat Jesus anything than absolutely seriously. And so we turn to the Laodiceans, and what does Jesus say to them? Verse 15... I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold, sorry, neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. The church in Laodicea was lukewarm towards Jesus. They were half-hearted. They weren't like some of the other churches. There were no great doctrinal errors. There was no great immorality. There was none of that obvious stuff. They were just half-hearted, lukewarm. On Sunday, things were great. They sang the songs. They sang about this amazing grace, about this amazing compassion and love that God had for them, about all that they wanted to do for him. Yeah, they sang all of that, but Jesus had seen their deeds. He said, I know your deeds. He'd watched them Monday through to Saturday. And what he saw just didn't match at all. At the heart of the vision we have for our church, and I have shared it a little bit with some, but this is the way, whenever I tell someone about this church, I use the image of a football pitch, whether you like football or not. And actually the way we think about church here is in two ways. 
Now, if you imagine a football pitch, there's a football match going on on the, on the, on the pitch. And that's where, you know, you're in the battle, you're up against it, you're doing all the stuff you've been trained to do, and you're out there living the Christian life. Monday to Saturday, wherever you are, in your family, at work, uh, in all the different places, what we've come to call in this church our front lines. We're there most of the time. But there are certain moments when, like in any football match, you go back to the changing room. There's half time. You go back to the changing room. What happens in the changing room? We take on board some food and drink, a bit of nourishment. Uh, some people have got a bit battered through the first half, so they're on the physio's table having a bit of a massage and being put back together again. Others, the manager's having to go around, he's got his arm around, just encouraging, that's great, keep going. Others have been a bit lazy and he says, come on. Gives them a bit of a kick up the backside. And then for, to everyone, he's reminding them what the game's all about, why they're playing, what the goal is, what's the aim of it all. And then he says, come on, now get back out there, get back and play it. Go on. And then they leave the change room, and off they go back onto the pitch. And I think that's what this is about. Sundays for us is the changing room. That's all it is. It's the changing room. It's the place to go, come on, let's get back out there. But the thing is this, the manager does not work out the quality of his team by what goes on in the changing room. What does he do? He watches what's going on on the pitch. That's where it matters. And you see, Jesus doesn't work out the health of his church by looking at what happens on a Sunday. This tells Jesus nothing about his church, what happens here on a Sunday. Because we can all read and sing these words to our heart's content. What he cares is, what does it look like on a Monday? Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And he says here to the Laodiceans, I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor cold, you are lukewarm. And actually, I wonder if there isn't a sense that they're getting the hairdry treatment. He says, I see no passion. I see no real commitment. I don't see that being a follower of me makes really much difference. I don't see a lot of impact or much effort, really. And verse 16 is damning. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. I need to tell you that the Greek word there for spit is a lot cruder. It says, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth, is what it says in the Greek. Literally, you make me nauseous, I want to throw up. Now imagine being a church, and the risen Jesus walks in amongst you and says, you make me want to throw up. You are so nauseous. Not because of doctrinal error, not because of sexual immorality or any other immorality in that church, but simply because they are half-hearted. They believe it all, but it makes little difference. As always, Jesus shows how much he knows his church by the detail he uses here. And uh, with all the uh, uh, letters we've seen it, and uh, it's no different here with Laodicea. You see, Laodicea was part of a cluster of three cities. There was Laodicea, Colossae, and Hierapolis. And I managed to visit all of them when I went on a tour of the seven churches some years ago. And I was able to see the things that actually we know about these three places. You see, in Colossae, where the letter to the Colossians was written, uh, it was, uh, had a much nearer to it. It was a natural source of uh, spring water. And therefore, the water that came into the city was always fresh, always refreshing, cooled and drunk to be drunk. But Laodicea was that much further away, and the water had to be piped there through stone pipes. And of course, by the time the water got there, firstly, it picked up a load of stuff along the way, but secondly, of course, it had warmed up through the heat of the day. So by the time it got to Laodicea, the water wasn't fresh, and it was quite tasteless. 
In Hierapolis, which was six miles away, they were famous for their hot springs. Like we stayed in a hotel and we swam in a swimming pool that was being heated from these hot springs. Those hot springs, as in many places, were seen to have medicinal qualities. And the water flowed out across the Lycus Valley and they spill over a cliff and you can still go to it today. I walked along this cliff, along the hot waters, really hot waters. And as the water evaporated, so it left this white kind of crust uh, across it, the sort of salt. It makes an amazing uh, wall, about 200 feet high, something like that. But as that water flowed on towards Laodicea, and it did do, it not only became tasteless, but it became nauseating. Unsuspecting tourists would drink it often then spit it out, and some of them would even throw up. You see, everyone knew about the cold, refreshing waters of Colossae. Everyone knew about the hot, medicinal healing waters of Hierapolis. But in Laodicea, the water was neither refreshing nor healing. It was lukewarm. It was nauseating. It must have been such a shock as a church to hear that. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, tells of how he began to realise that he was lukewarm as a Christian. The story goes that he was in an audience where a lecture was being given by a hardcore unbeliever. At one point, the lecturer chided Christians by saying, if I believe what some of you believe, I would never rest easy day nor night telling others about it. And at that moment, he said, it just woke him up. He said, what am I doing? What do I do with my life? I say one thing about Jesus, and yet, what do I do? We have heard the greatest news imaginable, haven't we? Those of us who are Christians here? Yeah, you're as unresponsive as 8 o'clock and 9 (laughs) o'clock. It'd be different in Nigeria, wouldn't it, Harry? Can we hear some amens or whoops or something that tells me you're alive? And do you believe it's the most unimaginable good news that anyone could ever hear? Why don't we sound like that every week when we come into church? If this is the most unimaginably good news that anyone could ever hear or believe. And Jesus reminds us of the basis of it right at the beginning of his letter. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Uh, the words uh, there, Amen, being used alongside God, is found, you find it in Isaiah 65, verse 16, twice, the God of Amen. We use Amen as a kind of spiritual full stop at the end of our prayers, don't we? But in the Hebrew thought, Amen is a really important word. It means that something is utterly valid and binding. It's a way of saying that something is utterly trustworthy, a foundation upon which to build. Jesus is saying that he is the utterly trustworthy foundation of life that his word is valid and binding, that in him and him alone is where life is found, true life. He's told he's the faithful and true witness. He's the utterly faithful witness to God. True here means genuine as opposed to fake. See, what Jesus says about God is utterly true because Jesus exactly represents God's. And it says here in your version, the ruler of God's creation. It actually there says the arche of God's creation. The arche means the beginning or the source of all creation. Jesus is the originator of all life. Twelve years ago, I chose the passage that will be read at my induction service here. And I remember to this day the passage that it was. 
It comes from the book of Colossians, and of course Colossian to Colossi. And we know from the letter that all the letters that were sent to Colossi, to the Colossians, were also to be passed on to the Laodiceans. And any letters to the Laodiceans were to be passed on to the Colossians. So we know that this letter was read by those people in Laodicea. And this is what they would have heard about Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's as if Jesus says this, are you really telling me that Jesus, the foundation and source of all life, is not worthy of passionate faith? Really? Really? See, what we know about Jesus deserves a vigorous, robust, wholehearted zeal. Zeal. Zealousness. I'm by nature not that kind of person. I'm a half-empty kind of person, always. Often people look at me and say, you look very miserable. (laughs) I'm working against my inner self. But I know that this is the best news in the world, isn't it? Isn't it the most extraordinary thing we have to share with others and live day by day? Yet I find this the scariest letter of all the letters that I read in Revelation 2 and 3. It is, honestly, the letter that stops me in my tracks most, that makes me look at myself in the mirror. And I ask myself genuinely, what does Jesus make of me when he looks at my life when I'm not here on a Sunday? I can sound terribly excited up here, and I genuinely am, but what is it like on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? What's it like on a Thursday on my day off? That's the big question, isn't it? Do you know, when I uh, sat, well, lay down, uh, trying to do this during this week, I had to just put it down and pray. I just felt overwhelmed at my inadequacy to stand up and give this sermon. So I thought, how can I do it? Except that I know this is true. And I just had to pray confession at my lukewarmness day by day. That Jesus probably feels nauseous when he looks at my life. That's the reality. Why? What causes this lukewarmness? What's happened to the Laodiceans probably would be very typical for each of us here today. The clues are there in the passage. I can't go into them in lots of detail, but it seems, again, like like for many of the churches, it's been compromised. We know that it is tough being a disciple of Jesus in those days. They're under great pressure from uh, all around to compromise religiously and compromise morally. But just listen to what the church is saying according to Jesus. Verse 17, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Do you know, the only way that it is possible for that church to stand and say those things is if they had compromised. Because we know enough about the history to say that if they were standing up for Jesus, they would be losing their jobs, they would be losing their businesses, and they would be right up against it, and many of them would be losing their lives. So be able to stand up and say, uh, we're wealthy and everything's fine, we've got everything we need, says, the only way we're doing this is by keeping our head down. 
We're not upsetting anybody. In fact, we're keeping it quiet that we're Christians. Nobody can spot it. They've just blended in to the city. As someone said, it is the natural consequence of drinking in the city's water, figuratively speaking. The Christians of Laodicea have drunk deeply of the spirit of Laodicea. You see, I do not need a thing would easily have been the motto of the city. Laodicea was wealthy. We know it was full of banks. It was self-sufficient. There was an earthquake there in AD 60, which really destroyed the city. They were offered help from Rome, and yet they said, no, we don't need your help because we've got plenty of money ourselves to put it right. Laodicea was famous for its clothing. I'm not sure if this is actually true, but maybe it was sort of the Paris or the Milan of its day. People dressed very chicly around there, not least because there were some sheep uh, which uh, had a particular wool which was very glossy and uh, made the most exquisite clothing. Laodicea was also had a great medical school that was famous and also they had in that medical school developed an eye salve which had become famous right across the world that could treat eye problems. So here's a city that says we're wealthy, we're fashionable, we have medicine, we can heal. We have it all and we can offer it all. And here is a church that says we've got it all as well. The church has just blended in. And they're enjoying it all. But they're not willing to stick out for Jesus, to truly be salt and light. And Jesus comes into the dressing room at half time. And he says, you just have no idea, have you? And they say, what, what do you mean we've got no idea? He says, you've no idea, look. But you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying you live in a place that has the best medical school that can offer you uh, this salve that can uh, rid your physical blindness but the reality is you are utterly blind to your real situation. And I find that one of the most frightening things it ever says in these letters, that actually, I think I'm something that I'm not. How easily we can self-deceive ourselves and how we need to hear the voice of Jesus. That's why we have to be here on a Sunday. We have to hear the word of God because we cannot trust what we think about ourselves. We have to hear what he thinks. He says, you're not rich, you're not well-clothed, you don't have clear sight, you are wretched like a tramp on the street, you are homeless, with absolutely nothing, you are blind and naked, you think you have it all, but you have nothing. Why? Because you have stopped coming to me. Because I am the one who's the source of real life. Instead, the reality is that day by day, you're still drinking the waters of the world around you. You still believe it's adverts, it's magazine articles, it's ways of looking at wealth and values, it's fashions, it's solutions for health and well-being and happiness. You still think, in the end, that's where you're going to find it. But you're wrong, it's me. I'm the source of life. I'm the source of true wealth. I'm the source of true spiritual beauty. I'm the source of true healing and wholeness. Come to me. Come to me. But just notice something. Actually, you can't, and nor can I, because I don't know Greek, and most of you don't know Greek very well. But my research tells me that there is something going on out here that maybe suggests that this isn't quite the hairdry treatment you might expect it to be. Because it sounds like it, doesn't it? This sounds pretty hard. 
But you know, at the end of all the words, they're poor and blind and naked, there is a little OS sound, which apparently in Greek has a sense of compassion. It gives a real compassionate tone to the letter. And actually, this passage is ending with extraordinary grace. Look at verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Why is Jesus being so hard on his church? Why is he being so firm in the words that he offers to them and maybe to some of us today? He says, because I love you. You may know that in Greek, and I do know this, that there are a number of different words for love in the Greek. There is the word eros, which speaks much more of a kind of erotic type love. There is philio, which speaks of more the love that you feel towards somebody. And then there is agape, which is less about what you feel, but more about that kind of choice to love, that that willingness to love despite what somebody else is like. I wonder which one of those three types of love you think is being spoken of here in that word. Any guesses? Agape. I guess most of us will say that. So it sounds the context, isn't it? Here's someone, well, I love you despite what you're like. No, it's filio. It's the word that says, I love you so much and I really feel it. I love you so much. Do you realise that's how Jesus feels about you? He doesn't just feel love in his head because he kind of has to. He feels it deep within. And that's why it hurts him when each week we are lukewarm and half-hearted and don't ever get anywhere near matching up to the words we sing Sunday by Sunday. He says, that's why I stop you in your trance. That's why I reprimand you. That's why I call on you to, to change and repent. It's because I love you so much. This is because I long nothing more than for you than, as it says in verse 21, for you to come and sit on the throne with me. I'm sat on the throne in heaven with my Father, and you can come and sit with me. That's where this is all moving. This is where this is all heading. Please, please just give yourself to me in this short time we've got left on earth. And he says, listen. Listen. Can you hear it? Can you hear it? He says, I'm knocking. I'm knocking on the door. I'm not going to force my way in. I'm not going to barge the door down. I'm knocking. But I want to come in. I want to come back in. It's not written to non-Christians. It's written to Christians. It's written to a church. It says, I want to come back in to my rightful place. But I want to come in and sit and eat with you. To share in the most intimate way in your life. I want to come in now, please. I'm knocking. I'm knocking. Will you let me in? Amen.